At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. If you would like to join me and Misha Globerman, the conversation, communication, negotiation, and conflict resolution expert who's been on the show many times, if you'd like to join us for something we're calling the Conversation Lab, there's a link in this show's description, also on the website, social media, all that stuff. And that link will take you to a free registration page to get in for free our new workshop that takes place on March 14th called the Conversation Lab. In this workshop, Misha and I will work together, and then you will watch him work his magic as he takes a real-life, challenging situation from someone in the workshop, someone who's having a problem with someone they care about. Misha will then go through all the different ways that you could engage in a more meaningful conversation that actually resolves the conflict and gets you all the stuff you want out of it. So if you have anything like that going on in your life, or you just want to learn these skills, or if you just want to hang out, which is great. 200 people came to the last one. We all hung out. Go to the link, sign up for it, March 14th, The Conversation Lab. See you there. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 227. I had almost convinced myself that I was psychic based on playing Pokemon Go. That is Jane McGonigal, a futurist who designs games, alternate reality games. I'm Jane McGonigal. I'm a game designer and a futurist, and I am a research director at the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto, California. The Institute for the Future is just that, an institute that helps community leaders and movement builders, small and large organizations, anyone create strategies for creating the futures that they want to live in. And Jane McGonigal, our guest in this episode, creates alternate reality games in which thousands of people across more than 30 countries and six continents take part in virtual worlds and in so doing, gain the ability to predict the future. That is, they gain a sensitivity of familiarity with conditions and cues that will lead to certain outcomes. In a sense, the games are psychological prepping exercises, which if you've ever played a game of any kind, you already know this feeling of predicting the future, which is what she was just describing in Pokemon Go. I have two seven-year-old daughters, and that was the first video game we invited them to play with us. And we've played a lot um, over the past, oh my gosh, it's almost... Um, it's going to be six years, I think. Um, and I thought I was like, you know, you can predict, will you catch them? Will they jump out? Will they vanish? Like I, I was, I knew it before it happened. And I was like, what? But then I realized it's like, it's the slightest sound cue, light cue, the pause before the thing. And my brain was just learning how to read these cues. Um, but it phenomenologically feels like you're psychic. And that is something that with some of the habits that professional futurists practice, you have a kind of similar phenomenon where it feels like you are unbelievably good at predicting the future, but what's actually happening is that you just have your ear to the ground in a way that's more effective, picking up these signals of change, and that the more you start kind of thinking about weird possibilities, they just start popping out at you. Yeah, we've discussed something like this before, briefly in a couple of episodes. 
In psychology, it's called prospection. It's the other side of the coin from retrospection. Prospection is our incredible ability to use experience and pattern recognition to generate, in imagination, plausible future scenarios based on material culled from retrospection so that we can plan accordingly. We can each generate virtual imaginary dream worlds in our minds and we can use those worlds to plan, prepare, and deliberate with others. And there's evidence to suggest that the evolutionary advantages this afforded led to further evolution of the brain structures that gave us the foundations of consciousness itself and the ability to create and benefit from culture. As the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead once put it, the purpose of thinking is to let the ideas die instead of us dying. So, in many ways, consciousness is the creation of an avatar, the self. And with that avatar, we can move through virtual realities generated by the other portions of the brain. This, by the way, is how a baseball player is able to hit a baseball. Yes, human reaction time is far too slow to hit a baseball if we just depended on reflexes alone. The same is true for boxers. Human reaction time is too slow to dodge a punch. It's also true for most video games. Human reaction times are far too slow to react quickly enough to win at a fighting game or a first-person shooter, which is why the idea of twitch reactions is just a myth. What's actually happening here is practice. A person who spends a lot of time playing a video game or a sport or anything, even a board game, starts to become better at predicting what will happen in the next second or two based on previous experience. When the conditions match the patterns we've learned via practice, we begin to react as if those futures are inevitable a few seconds before they happen. Here's a clip with sports and science journalist David Epstein, the author of The Sports Gene, talking about this way back in episode 30. Right. Well, it, it turns out that um, a, a major league fastball, for example, is actually moving too fast for human biology really to react to it. So the average reaction time of major league hitters um, is about 200 milliseconds or a fifth of a millisecond. I'm sorry, a fifth of a second. And that, that's that's basically the same as teachers, doctors, lawyers. They're, they're nothing special. And that's just the minimum time it takes to see that there's a ball in flight for that information to cross the synapses to the back of your brain and for you just to even start your muscles moving. And that's half the total flight time of the pitch, just to start your muscles moving. Mm-hmm. Add that to the fact that, you know, we've all gotten that little league advice, keep your eye on the ball, but actually our eyes can't track um, an object as its angular position is changing that rapidly as it gets close to your head. So that, that advice is nonsense. You could actually close your eyes once the ball were halfway in if it weren't psychologically upsetting. So we really aren't equipped to be able to react to things moving that fast. But what major league hitters learn to do through specific kinds of practice is to unconsciously pick up on body movements of the pitchers, shifts of the pitcher's torso, rotation of the pitcher's shoulder, the, the flicker of the, of the ball, which is the flashing pattern that the seams make when the ball rotates. And as soon as that is out of the pitcher's hand, and even before, they use that to make a judgment about where the ball um, is going to go in the future. And, and that's the only way that they're able to what they do. In fact, if you ever watch a major league hitter, you'll see they're actually starting their swing sequence well before the ball has been released because there's, there's no way for them to react to it fast enough. It's completely built on sort of this learned expertise. In Epstein's book, he writes how professional baseball players can't hit a softball thrown by a professional softball pitcher despite being closer, the ball being bigger, and the pitch being slower. Jenny Finch, who was um, an elite softball pitcher who sort of in an exhibition struck out some major league, some of the best major league baseball hitters, uh, you know, some of them ever. And, um, you know, they didn't even hit foul balls off her. And, and she did so well that it just turned into a TV show where she would go around um, with Fox once a week to a different baseball training camp and strike out their best hitter. <laughs> and, and they they thought they were going to hit her. She pitches from closer than a normal major league mound, mm-hmm. but because she pitches so much slower, about low to mid sixty miles per hour, 
the transit time of her pitch is actually longer than some of the pitches they're used to facing, and the ball's bigger. So, you know, logically, you'd kind of think they should have a better chance of hitting it. But again, because they don't have special reaction speeds, they need to rely on those, those, those interpretive skills that they've learned. And she has completely different shifts of her body, totally different rotation of the shoulder because she's throwing underhanded. The spin of the ball is completely different. So all those cues that they had learned to pick up on that allow them to do something that's otherwise impossible are gone when they face her. And consequently, the best hitters in baseball could not even hit a foul ball off her. I mean, so many guys had gotten embarrassed that by the time she got to Alex Rodriguez, he, he refused even to, to go and step into the batter's box against her. He finally wised up. Predicting the future. Imagining future scenarios. That's what Jane McGonigal is working on today. And she's written a book that teaches using just your imagination how to do this in ways that can improve your life and quite possibly save us from impending doom. And we will get into all of that in a second. First, though, to introduce you to McGonigal, you really should know that she is a two time New York Times best selling author. Her first book, Reality is Broken, explored human behavior inside MMOs, massively multiplayer online games like World of Warcraft, and why, within those game worlds, people are willing to spend thousands of hours working very hard toward goals in ways they don't outside of those game worlds. As she points out, we collectively spend several billion hours a week inside online games, The average player spends about 10,000 hours playing online games by the age of 21, which is the same amount of time that person will spend in school from grade 5 to graduation. McGonagall says that's because in those worlds, we are driven by four things. One, urgent optimism. The desire to act immediately to tackle a problem because we feel we have a reasonable hope of success. Two, tight social fabrics. In these game worlds, if you've never played one, it might surprise you. Even when someone has defeated you, you will develop a strong bond of trust with that person, with all fellow players working together, working against each other. Game worlds that have communities have very strong communities. Three, blissful productivity. The knowledge that you will be happier while working hard than you will be sitting idle in the game world. And four, well, here she is from her TED Talk back in 2010, which is ranked as the 16th most engaging TED Talk of all time and which has 6.1 million views. Finally, epic meaning. Gamers love to be attached to awe-inspiring missions, to human planetary scale stories. So just one bit of trivia that helps put that into perspective. Um, So you all know Wikipedia, biggest wiki in the world. Second biggest wiki in the world, with nearly 80,000 articles, is the World of Warcraft wiki. Five million people use it every month. They have compiled more information about World of Warcraft on the internet than any other topic covered on any other wiki in the world. They are building an epic story. They are building an epic knowledge resource about the World of Warcraft. Okay, so these are four superpowers that add up to one thing. Gamers are super empowered, hopeful individuals. These are people who believe that they are individually capable of changing the world. And the only problem is they believe that they are capable of changing virtual worlds and not the real world. That's the problem that I'm trying to solve. So, in the time since, Jane McGonigal has been creating alternate reality games that challenge players to tackle real-world problems like poverty and hunger and climate change through, quote, planetary-scale collaboration. In one of those games, years ago, before COVID, people took part in a simulated worldwide pandemic, and the behaviors they exhibited, the psychology that emerged, the thoughts and feelings they experienced... She tracked them, recorded them, quantified them. 
And they did exactly what we did over the last few years. The predicted behavior, it matched. Even the politics and polarization of wearing masks, the spread of misinformation, the places where super spreader events would take place, even QAnon, which in the simulation emerged as something called Citizen X. After the break, you will learn all about all of this stuff. You'll learn what she has learned making these games and how it has all led to a book that promises to teach you how to think like a futurist titled Imaginable, how to see the future coming and feel ready for anything, even things that seem impossible today. All that after this break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just, there's too many, you can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. 
streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. Let's talk about the superstructure thing you did where you had thousands of people. Uh, I, I don't know how you picked the perfect topic, but it was a, a respiratory uh, pandemic that people jumped into. You somehow were able to get them to ask themselves, what would you do if this, if that, if this, then that? What came out of that? Mm. So one of the types of games that I specialize in is something that I call a social simulation, which is like essentially creating this new social network, but it's a social network that exists 10 years in the future. And everybody who's a member of this network is posting updates from their lives 10 years in the future. And they're asking for help with challenges 10 years in the future. And to orient everybody to be imagining the same future, we give them a series of scenarios and news reports from this future. And you know, here's some stuff that's going on in the future. So Superstruct was one of the first big social simulations that we ran at the Institute for the Future. We had about 8,000 people spend six weeks imagining what they would do in a series of cascading crises that started with a respiratory pandemic. And because we always look at least 10 years in the future, this game was set in the fall of 2019. So it's the fall of 2019. We've got this global respiratory um, pandemic. And at the same time, it's affecting our supply chain. So people are running out of what they need. How are you handling that? We were talking about um, misinformation and disinformation groups using social media, which, you know, this is back in 2008. People were just getting on Twitter. You know, the Facebook had fairly recently opened up to the world and not just college students. So we were thinking, you know, how is information about these crises spreading and Anyway, people were essentially living in what turned out to be our actual 2019-2020 experience. And what makes social simulations, I think, different from other approaches to predicting the future is I'm not asking you to predict what anyone else would do. You don't have to be an expert. There are some schools of forecasting where you know, um, sort of famously Philip Tetlock has a theory of super forecasters. They're like hundred people in the world who are really good at predicting anything, the, the price of oil in two weeks and, you know, exactly what Putin will do on what day. And I have to take the sort of opposite approach. I don't want you to think about anything except for yourself. Think about your own values, your hopes, your fears, your skills, what you would need, what you could do. So we had all these people just like, what would you do? It's a pandemic. Um, if, if, if you have to work from home, can you work from home? How do you adapt? Do you have kids? Do they have to learn from home now? How does that affect your ability to do other things in your life? Hey, you've been told to isolate or quarantine. Under what circumstances do you ignore these orders and go out anyway? And so we just looked for trends and patterns in people's individual forecasts, right? So everybody's an expert on their own 
future. And it would be fun if you want to, you know, do a, a, a tangent or deep dive. People have this, I think, incorrect perception that we are bad at predicting our own futures, like sort of over extrapolating from some social psychology experiments about our inability to predict how happy purchasing like items will make us. Um, and people have totally over extrapolated that to say we can't predict the future, <laughs> but that's total BS. We're actually, it t- turns out we can definitely, like if you were to put me on, if you were like Jane, if I put you on an airplane with a parachute, would you jump out or would you not? I'm like, I can very accurately tell you that I would definitely not jump out of the plane. Um, so we can predict our own actions. People did that. We look for patterns. At the start of 2020, I'm getting phone calls from people who knew we ran these types of simulations. They're asking what patterns were in the data. What should we be thinking about? And, you know, we had in the data um, that people are going to go to church no matter what. That will be the biggest super spreader. You know, you have to get people moving fellowship and worship online because people will go to worship no matter what. We were talking about weddings and funerals, same thing. We were saying, hey, we have people wear masks, like in cultures where they don't have a tradition of wearing masks. And uh, yeah, people don't like it. <laughs> Definitely going to be hard. <laughs> it sounds rational and reasonable, but there are going to be fights. And, you know, I mean, so what What I'm excited about is, you know, I think, I think we have a methodology that we can use one to get accurate data about otherwise hard to anticipate social consequences but also the people who participated they did experience the real 2020 differently and i spent the last couple of years following up with participants in fact i just talked to three um three superstruck players today this morning um it it's it's amazing how having imagined living in this world for 6 weeks it just took away some of that initial shock and uncertainty. Do I have to care about this? Is this going to be a big deal? They were able to move towards, you know, feeling ready, feeling like, okay, I'm not a pandemic expert, but I've thought about this before this, I can handle this. Um, There's just less anxiety, less shock, less hopelessness. And, you know, if we can just like have a little less suffering, a little less shock, be a little less frozen when we face the future, then this is some, this is something that can help all of us, you know, as we go into the decades coming of, I mean, who climate change, extreme weather, political shocks, World War Three. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. <laughs> the, um, I, 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 I want to talk about the book, but before we jump into to this, to the hardcore stuff in there, I, uh, looking at, at this game that you created and this virtual reality type thing that people were were sort of examining their own futures within, uh, it blew my mind that you had uh, not just that you it you were you had this information that predicted how people would respond to social distancing and masking, which blows my mind that you could that you predicted the the weirdness of the masks, um, misinformation, polarization, all that stuff, and also the churches, the weddings. Uh, for younger people, nightclubs and parties. Yeah, you have all these things that were predicted, but you also had this one thing that I cannot believe it. I know you. I know we want to get in the book, but I want to just ask you this one thing: Citizen X. <laughs> I can't believe that you had yeah. something you could hand to people in authority about this thing that had not occurred yet. That is definitely a thing now. Citizen X. Mm-hmm. Could you just talk about that just for a second? Yeah. So in um, in a simulation that was called Evoke, which I created with the World Bank, we had about twenty thousand people. It's been 10 weeks imagining what they would do in crises that also started with the pandemic. Um, Cause we were really, and you know, it, it's interesting. People ask like, how did you decide what to simulate and you know, how you must be really good at predicting the future. And I always say, all you have to do is ask, you know, people who are experts, what, what's keeping them up at night. And when you hear lots of people from lots of different fields and lots of different areas of expertise say the same thing, then you just know, okay, this is, this is the future and we should get ready for it. Um, you know, at the time uh, in Evoke, we were, we were trying to think of what would complicate pandemic response. And I think, you know, we had on our mind a little bit um, WikiLeaks as kind of like a, a precursor. And also in my own experience with alternate reality games, I saw this incredible, I mean, like this human desire to make meaning out of things that that were not actually meaningful. It's, it's the same thing that drives us to 
to dive into conspiracy theories and it's it explains the positive emotions we get from religious communities this feeling everything is connected it's all part of something bigger but but we were seeing it pop up in game cultures and in the early days of social media you know this this desire to to go down rabbit holes and dig deep and so yeah we did i mean that was something we saw coming this sort of the the joining of game culture where like everything's a game and you're just you're it's you're you're just trying to see what you can get away with combined with this desire for it all to make sense and and especially on the internet where there's like an endless array of information that you can you know consume and incorporate into your theory so so yeah that was and we talked about you know the importance of having an infodemiology response so just as important as actually developing treatments and vaccines how are we going to per- essentially vaccinate people against misinformation it is um it's it's good i mean people have been thinking about that i think we now realize we need to think about it more um for future crises you know um one group that i got uh to be around in the course of researching and writing this book was um the planetary defense conference that comes together every two, two years to actually talk about defending our planet from asteroids and other near earth objects and boy they are into they are looking at this problem really seriously now because what if nasa or some space agency says hey an asteroid is coming we think it has we're going to try to deflect it with nuclear weapons but if if we fail you know it's going to hit this region evacuate like you have a year to evacuate you have like six months or a week or whatever it might be um would people even believe it or worse if if we start to learn about the science which people are getting increasingly interested right in 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 this field what if people start putting out misinformation you know claiming that scientific bodies are withholding data and it's definitely going to hit and we you know uh they're really looking at at this now so it's it's just an example of i guess one of those future forces that will affect almost everything and and part of what we do in these games and these simulations is we try to find the intersections like take this future force and intersect it with this global risk and you know what do you get these simulations are incredible it makes me feel like uh, like a holodeck type thing that i would create to help me be a super prepper i come from a prepper household my dad was a oh. my dad's a huge huge prepper uh, he was very excited at the beginning of the pandemic because because he could give me all this advice. He's like, okay, here's what you need to do. And some of, he's like, buy this, buy that, do this, do this, learn how to dig this and how to build that. The idea that I could have a simulation that I could jump into that would prep me. Uh, I like that in um, social science, instead of prepping, they just call it inoculation theory. Uh, and I thought about that over and over again reading your book is that uh, you took all of these insights over these years of working in this space and these simulations that you've run, and you developed a set of rules and tips and tricks and programs and things that you can do. You made a book that is a, that is a way to kind of do one of these simulations at your own pace. Yes. It's an incredible tool. This is like an instruction manual that goes in your prepper toolkit. This should go in, in the box that you have on your Jeep for when it's time to get ready for the next thing. <laughs> I love that you did this. Um, it's I love the voice in it. Your voice in this book comes through strong and clear. Uh, I love the format of it and the readability of it, and I know exactly what's coming next. It feels good to read this book. You really did something cool here. This is not an easy task. These are <laughs> these these yeah. are not it's not easy to make or write a book, but it's really not easy to make one with this dense and um heady of a of a, a concept that readable and and navigable so uh thank you for doing that it's really cool i'm really happy to hear you say that because one thing you know i said i don't gamify stuff but one one way that i tried to use my my knowledge as a game designer in writing this book is i knew that at the end of the book i wanted to present a few scenarios because people always ask me okay Back in, you know, 2008, 2010, you were predicting the pandemic and the conspiracy, like, okay, what's next? So I wanted to present, you know, essentially Superstruct 2, Evoke 2. Um, but I I also knew that, you know, I wanted to present very challenging futures that would sound as ridiculous as unthinkable as all that stuff did back then, right? You know, because there's no point in preparing for futures that we've already accepted are likely. I mean, we're already doing that, right? Um, 
So I tried to structure and design and write the book so that these scenarios could be like that boss level where you're using everything that you've learned and you really are ready. And if you just flip to the back of the book without reading it, I do think people will have a hard time truly imagining, truly thinking, well, what would I do if there were a global vote on whether to geoengineer the planet, whether to, you know, block the sun's rays for 10 years so that we could try to unwind climate change? Like, it sounds too science fiction-y, but by the time you get to the end of the book, it's not just that you can imagine it, but it's you can, you've already figured out, you know, what are the strengths I bring to the future? What are the skills? What are my values? Here's exactly what I'm going to do when that election starts. You know, how am I going to influence the um, the vote and how it turns out? Anyway, that's uh, it's nice to hear you say that you felt like um, it really uh, it really works as a book. It does. It is hard it, to think about this stuff. And I just uh, I just appreciate because I know that took a lot of work to do something like that. I want to go through a couple things in the book. Uh, I'm not going to give the whole thing away here or anything like that. But uh, there are a few things I want people to know about so that they go buy this thing. Uh, one of the things that came out of the research that, you are, that you've done are the, are the simulations that you touched on a second ago is that people, when they go through those things, they find that they are better prepared for those eventualities. They're able to recognize cues that beforehand may have been invisible to them. I know from previous interviews with, with um, people who study sports stuff, they talk about how you have a softball pitcher throw a ball at a baseball player, and they're not very they they can they can hardly hit the ball, even though it's going slower and it's a bigger ball. In fighting games, like people get really good at fighting games over time because they they can tell like. 15 seconds in advance what's likely going to happen because they can see the cues on the screen and in the behavior of the other other player and the positions they're in so it's more like you are actually making making a prediction of the future mm -hmm. and so you do what you would need to do now so that your current action meets the action that's going to take yeah. place in the future which is what a baseball player does they begin their muscle movements well in advance of what needs to take place because no one no brain could actually hit a ball going that fast mm -hmm. if you had to do it based off reaction time you're so that's so funny because I had almost convinced myself that I was psychic based <laughs> on playing Pokemon Go, which is which I have I have two seven year old daughters, and that was the first video game we invited them to play with us. And we've played a lot um over the past, oh my gosh, it's almost almost it's gonna be six years, I think. Um and I thought I was like, you know, you can predict, will you catch them? Will they jump out? Will they vanish? Like I, I was, I knew it before it happened. And I was like, what? But then I realized it's like, it's the slightest sound cue, light cue, the pause before the thing. And my brain was just learning how to read these cues. Um, but it, it phenomenologically feels like you're psychic. And that is something that with some of the habits that professional futurists practice, you have a kind of similar phenomenon where it feels like you are unbelievably good at predicting the future, but what's actually happening is that you just have your ear to the ground in a way that's more effective, picking up these signals of change, and that the more you start kind of thinking about weird possibilities, they just start popping out at you, like from from the news headlines and on social media posts or walking by people hearing weird conversations, your brain is just, you've made it salient, right? It's not exactly the same thing, but like, how do you make a topic that feels far away or not relevant to your present life? How do you make it feel important enough that your brain really notices information about it, seeks it out, feels rewarded? I mean, you have to get, you have to get the dopamine system engaged with things that we otherwise our brain says like, not important. I don't care. Not going to get excited about. And so, yeah, these simulations and some of these habits where we, we do like signals of change scavenger hunts where we get together and we're like, go find something weird that you've never seen before, bring it back to the group. And we all sit around like the virtual campfire and being like, here's a weird thing I never saw before. What do you think it means? Um, and, uh, and, and it just, it just changes the way your brain takes in information so that you have a, a wider, spectrum of things that feel relevant. And that was absolutely when I started hearing from players of Superstruct and Evoke, but particularly Superstruct because because the quarantine scenario was really central in that game. People were saying, you know, I just have been paying attention to this stuff. Like even though, you know, we only played this for a few weeks, I just always it just I always seem to notice when there's pandemic stuff in the news, you know, and or virus stuff. 
it just, it just makes our brain say, mm, this is relevant to me. It, it hails me in a way that for other people, it doesn't. Also, let me mention again, there's a book that you have written that gives you some of these skills if you go through it <laughs> step by step. I want to talk about one right now, which is, uh, there's this question that you like asking people, which is, when does the future start? That's a great question. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I Whenever I teach a workshop or a class, the first thing we do is, is I just ask people, if I were, if I, you know, we're here to talk about the future. Where, where does your mind go when you start that mental time travel? And I say, okay, picture yourself in the future, future you waking up, living your life. How far forward do you go? And there are so many different answers. Some people literally just go to tomorrow. The future means waking up tomorrow. Some people go a year, five years, 10 years. Um, and uh, so I have a lot of sort of quantitative data on this question. I've asked over 50,000 people now this question. Um, and, uh, but, but what's interesting is when I started training as a professional futurist, everyone around me, there was no variation. It wasn't like, let's do a future forecast set five years in the future. Okay, well, I'm going to do mine in 20. And everybody always used the 10-year timeline. And um I, I sort of was brought into this culture and learned about what makes 10 years so powerful. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is enough time for there to be dramatic enough change that it's worth going to the future. I mean, if, if we're trying to imagine futures that are either so different from today that they would be difficult to adapt to. It's like a crisis or some disruption, or we're trying to imagine positive change that's so transformative that it really makes us hopeful and feel like, wow, the world could could get better if we can achieve this this huge this huge step forward. Um, so we have to give ourselves enough runway to really imagine that. And historically, you know, you know, if you're thinking about technological change, it took. 10 years to go from the first Facebook user to a billion users, 10 years from Bitcoin being an idea, a hypothetical idea in a scientific paper until it was already in the hundreds of billions of market capitalization. You know, it took 10 years from the first protest against racial segregation in the United States to actually achieve successful passage of federal civil rights act. I mean, so it's social change, it's technological change, um, and it's even personal change. Like we all have the experience of who we were in the 20 in our 20s, who we were in our 30s. <laughs> I'm hanging out in my 40s now. Definitely, you know, we have a we have a just a cultural mindset of of really understanding that things change in decades. So, um, you know, it it turns out that for professional futurists, we really like to say that the future starts in 10 years. It's why my games are always set 10 years in the future. It's almost like uh I mean, you just, you know, when you come hang out with me, we're going to be going 10 years ahead. <laughs> um, and uh, but the best, best thing about the 10 year timeline is that it really does kind of lift the ceiling on our imagination. Like it's like a, it's like being in a cathedral or the Grand Canyon, right? Because we get out of the minutia of the everyday, the, the, our assumptions about how things have to be. And we have all this time spaciousness. Like I could accomplish a lot in 10 years. If you ask me to change the world, you know, people say, oh, the future starts now. The future starts today. I can't change everything in a day. But if you give me 10 years, you know, I could, I could learn a new skill. I could recruit allies. I could start a social movement. I could invent a new technology. I mean, I could grow a business to a billion. You can do a lot in 10 years. So let's, let's, let's go that far out. Let's give ourselves that time spaciousness to really be able to think more audaciously and creatively and flexibly about what, what could be different and what we ourselves could make different. Well, you mentioned the study. This is the kind of thing that I, I as soon as I read it, I was like, mm, I'm going to ask her about this and I'm going to tell everybody the next campfire about this. Uh, <laughs> it's called the letter tracing task. Yeah. I'm not going to step on it any further than that. Please talk about the letter tracing task and what it shows us. Sure. Okay. So, um, I'm going to preface this by saying the way people answer this question or complete the task, you can change it by having them imagine themselves 10 years in the future. So that's it. This is why I, this is how I became aware of this task. And so the task is you ask somebody to trace the letter C right in front of their forehead, not touching their forehead, but just like a few inches out so they could see the tip of their finger as they trace it in the air. And there are two ways that people tend to do this. 
one way to do this is you trace the letter C so that you can see it. It would look like a C if your if your finger were a marker and you were drawing it on the air or drawing on paper in front of you. It's facing you. It looks like a C to you. The other way that people do this is they trace the letter C the opposite way so that it's legible to somebody across from them or standing away from them. And this task, how you respond to it, it's associated with essentially, are you kind of stuck inside your own point of view, sort of trapped in your own mind and body, seeing, literally seeing things from your point of view, or do you have a kind of more expansive mindset where you're taking in other points of view? And, and uh, it turns out for the, and and some people like people just have different natural inclinations for this. Some people will do it one way most of the time and do it another way. Um, but if you want people who normally trace it so they can see it to trace it the other way, you just ask them to like, hey, picture yourself strolling on a beach ten years from today with a friend. Like, what who what friend might you be with? And you have to make this really vivid because with all of these future imagination tasks, the more details and specificity, the more it all works. That's why we have people write journal entries from the future. It's not just like, what would you do in a pandemic? We're like, okay write a detailed journal entry of what you did today, where you went, the conversations you had, the emotions you were feeling, because the specificity of detail is really important. You translate this into, in the book, you have all these tasks and games you can play with yourself uh, to get better at doing this. One of them, I have a note here is, um, imagine waking up 10 years from now, excited about X is about to happen. Like, that's a very specific thing to imagine. Close your eyes and imagine you just woke up 10 years from now and you're very excited about something that's happening that day. What is the thing? Yeah. This blows my mind. How did you come up with something like this? This is such a cool task. Oh, you know, I mean, I, I'm a nerd. I spent a lot of time reading scientific papers. I'm the one with the Google Scholar alert for terms like, you know, episodic future thinking and future imagination and... um I got, you know, I mean, in the over the past 15 years, I've done such a deep dive on, you know, the the people who actually, you know, I'm I'm not publishing in scientific journals about this. I'm trying to translate it to, you know, practical habits and like easy games. And um, but really in the clinical literature, what they're seeing is is you need you need to be able to induce specificity. If you want people, if you want all of these, the benefits of thinking about the future to actually happen, the more specific the better. And so, you know, there's all, there's all forms of specificity induction. You can ask about the senses, you know, when you wake up 10 years from now, um, is your body different in any way? Like physically, could you imagine 10 years from now, you can be 10 years older. Maybe you'll be stronger, fitter. Maybe you'll be tired. I don't know. I'll be less tired because my kids will be grown up and moving out of the house. So uh, 10 years from now, I'm going to wake up with energy <laughs> at last. Um, but so you imagine the physicality of it. You can imagine, you know, what's the quality of the light? Is there a strong light coming in? Why, where do you live that the sun comes in the, you know, and you start to get really detailed, um, Who's in the room with you when you wake up? Are they talking to you? What's the quality of voice? You try to hear it in your imagination. The more details you bring, the 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 stronger your future imagination gets, which is you know important for all of these reasons of feeling ready for anything or or being able to imagine the change we want to make in the world and actually feel motivated and believe that it's possible and so that we can actually make the change. But one of the studies that I'm I'm probably over obsessed with. I just I, I become like a super fan, a fangirl for different studies, the way some people would for like comic books or sure. Marvel movies. I fangirl about different studies. There was a study from 1985 where the researchers were studying what changes are um, beliefs that certain futures are possible, and so they um, took a bunch of students and divided them into two groups, and both groups were given a little, you know. We'll talk about a, a imaginary disease, right? They didn't know it was imaginary, but the researchers just made it up. And um, they were told what the symptoms were. And then they were asked to keep a diary for two weeks every day, wake up and write down about the symptoms you're feeling. Because guess what? For, this, for the purpose of this experiment, I want you to imagine that you caught this novel illness. And so you had this whole list of symptoms and you had to wake up and write, how does it feel? How's it affecting your ability to do your like, classwork or go out with your girlfriend or whatever? And um, the, 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 the thing that was interesting about the experiment is one group of students 
got a set of symptoms that was really easy to imagine. Headaches, loss of appetite, you know, things you could relate to, right? Feeling tired, even though you got a full night's sleep. I mean, most people, if I should imagine having a headache, you have enough experience with it. You could vividly imagine it, right? The other group got these weird symptoms that were not fully explained, like liver aches. What does the liver <laughs> ache feel like? I don't know. Do you know? I, mean, I don't think so. They, they, <laughs> there was a paresthesia. I mean, this was before Google. You couldn't just go Google what is paresthesia, right? They like you have paresthesia, you know. So imagine yourself. How are they supposed to know what this is? Um, they couldn't look it up on the internet. So they had them keep these diaries for two weeks. The group that had, you know, easy to imagine symptoms had very vivid journal entries, very detailed, wrote longer, more persuasive. Entries. The people who had these weird symptoms they didn't understand wrote, you know, fewer words, less details, less vivid. And then at the end of this experiment, they asked them, okay, you know, now that you've spent two weeks thinking about this novel illness, you know, what do you think is the probability that you you might actually get it? You know, and the people who had this vivid imagination because it was easy for them to come these really specific you know, future stories, they thought it was much more likely than the people who literally couldn't imagine it because they didn't even understand what these symptoms meant. So if you literally can't imagine something, um, then you're not going to think it's very likely. And for me, like, that's the kind of research that puts a fire in my pants to like, get out there and help people imagine the futures that experts say are likely, but that we don't really have enough information. Like to us, we're walking around and geoengineering is like paresthesia. We don't really understand what it would mean for our everyday lives. We got to, we got to make it more like headaches <laughs> where it's something, you know, that we, we can all relate to and feel in our bodies and feel in our minds so that we can make more informed decisions about it. I mean, this gets to the idea of like changing people's minds and opinions. The easiest time to change someone's opinion is before they have one, <laughs> that's you right, know, and that's right. it's, it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to fight with people about, you know, what's the right thing to do around maybe new climate technologies or migration policies. Like let's, before there's a culture war over this, let's have people think about it in their own lives, their own communities, their own values before, you know, a political party tells them what to think. And then maybe we could actually have more consensus. Cause I do think most of us would like you know, to live on a safe planet. We would like to, you know, feel like we have more abundance and less insecurity, but we got to, we got to have people start thinking about this before it's all politicized. And so, you know, and vividly imagine how it might feel. The, you, in the book, you have all these tips, uh, and then in, in the book is very well pre presented where there's a opening and then you get the meat and you get the science and you get all sorts of examples. And at the end you have, okay, if you just wanted to clip this out and put it on your refrigerator or something, here's the thing that I'm asking you to do. If you want to put it in, in a notebook or take a note to yourself, do these things. Uh, things like learn to time travel, uh, play with scenarios, be ridiculous. These all, these all have chapters worth of material within them. Um, I know we don't have a ton of time, so I wanted to point one out for, and cause I like this one a lot. If you could just talk about it at, at any length you want, uh, Rule number five is turn the world upside down. Yeah. Uh, learn how to turn the world upside down. I think yeah. this is super cool. Could you talk a little bit about it? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, it's the most practical, easy to adopt practice in the book. Um, and I, I do this with all sorts of communities and groups. So like next week, I'm doing it with booksellers. And I did it recently with healthcare professionals. And you can do it for anything, including your own life. You write 100 things that are true generally true about a future topic. So future views, future food, future of religion, future of even my family. Like what's true about my family's life today? So you write a hundred things that are true and then you rewrite each of those facts so that the opposite is true. And this is not a logical process and you can absolutely cannot worry that the new version makes no sense. Um, so, you know, when I demo it around shoes, I say, well, like, okay, it's a fact that most of us take our shoes off when we sleep. Like it's not a normal social practice to sleep with our shoes on. So 10 years from now, because we always do, you know, 10 years, take our, take our time to 10 years in the future, 10 years from now, many people sleep with their shoes on. So you're just, you're just writing new versions of reality, like creating your own upside down world where everything you think, you know, is no longer true. And then you start looking for clues or evidence that could explain why this weird 
upside down fact is no longer true, right? These are the signals of change, stuff that's already happening that maybe if it became more common, if it, if this weird thing became the norm, it could explain these upside down futures. And, you know, I've, I've been doing future of shoes for a long time. Actually, I, I work with a number of shoe companies. That's just like one of my things that I'm interested <laughs> in. I've been doing this forever. And I had people sleep with their shoes on, on my list of upside down futures for years. And I just didn't have a good explanation for it. I couldn't think about it. Um, and then I lived um, through the new California wildfire season. And I had um, a, a, an evacuation and rescue expert from the wild cross, uh, what from the red cross tell me to my face, look, you guys should be sleeping with your shoes on because the number one injury that people experience during evacuations are foot injuries and they lose precious time panicking, looking for their shoes. They can't find their shoes. They hurt their feet. It slows them down. Um, and so they actually recommend that people sleep with their shoes on during extreme weather um, and during this, this kind of climate emergency, mm. which in California, the climate emergency is months at a time now where I live. We are literally under wildfire evacuation alerts for months. So now suddenly I'm realizing, okay, this is just my experience of the climate emergency. But, you know, what if, what if, you know, someone like me, we start to experience PTSD, climate PTSD. This is, this is exhausting to be living through this emergency. And we start sleeping with our shoes on all the time, just in case it's like a hypervigilance, it's a traumatic response. You know, what is it? Should shoe companies start making sleeping shoes? Is this the world we're hmm. going to live in? And I don't mean this. A lot of futurists are like, they, they work for companies. They're like, here's the product and services you'll want to make for the future. That's not my thing. But I want people to be able to vividly imagine the world in which they just bought a pair of sleeping shoes and they sleep with their shoes on because that's the state of the climate. And is this a world we want to wake up in? If it's not, we need to start thinking about things like changing our migration policies to support freer movement on the earth. So there aren't a billion people living in regions of the world where you sleep with your shoes on. And this is, it's really about making personal choices and also thinking about, you know, the societal systemic factors that, that we, if we have a decade, you know, we can start to push on different levers. We can try to find our power um, so that we're not waking up in the world where Nike's biggest seller is the sleeping shoe, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's good. I, that, I want to talk about one other thing before we head out. I've been giving lectures about this and talking about this all over the place. Cognitive empathy as a vital part of um, having difficult conversations and conflict resolution and negotiation and talking to people mm -hmm. who are uh, have different motivations and values than you have. I was very surprised to find in the book this part, this one of these rules goes into this concept of emotional simulation. If you could talk a little bit about the difference between easy empathy and hard empathy and how important that is to this project that we're talking about. Sure. I mean, easy empathy, it's something we're all familiar with. It's when you observe somebody else going through an emotional experience that you have been through yourself. So if you see a kid, you know, it's, they're at their birthday party and the, the pile of presents and the cake is coming out and they're like, woo, like most of us have a childhood memory of being the birthday boy or the birthday girl and our body just it simulates it for us. It, it will, it will start to produce the hormones that create similar emotions. We literally feel in our mind and body. We can relate if we see someone being, you know, um, berated by a partner and maybe we've lived through that. We can feel that, that anger, shame, or frustration. So, so that's easy empathy. And it's not easy because it's easy to feel. We often, it's often, it's very painful to feel if, if we're feeling empathy for other people's distress or suffering. So it's not easy to feel, but it's easy to conjure up because it's all based on our own lived experience. With hard empathy or cognitive empathy, we don't have our own direct experience to draw on. So we're just making guesses. If we, if we want to try to understand their point of view or, or imagine their lived experience, we, we have to just, we have to, we have to somehow come at it from this more abstract cognitive place and, and predict 
But what is um, what's interesting is is the research literature suggests you know we're not really at, at as good at cognitive empathy as we think we are. We're like, oh wow, yeah. If if I got fired from my job, it's never happened to me. But if I did, here's how I would feel. A lot of times, we're very bad at um, imagining what someone else is feeling. But there's like a there's like a secret back door to cognitive empathy, which is instead of trying to imagine how someone else is feeling, we try to imagine ourselves in a future that is more like their reality. And so I, I call this blended empathy in the book, where it's, you know, like, for example, what's going on in Ukraine right now, it, it is very hard for most people to imagine what this lived experience is like and the trauma of this invasion and the fight, you know, to, 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 to survive, um, just trying to imagine ourselves in their shoes. We're we're probably going to be pretty bad at it. We get a little better at it when we shift the details to our own lives. I need to imagine that the state of California is being invaded by taxes or whatever it is. I, I just went to Austin, by the way, and they they feel the other way, right? They're, they're like, <laughs> right. They think we're coming for them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we have. It's it's it sounds. It, it probably sounds a little weird, but you know why is why is imagining something fictional more effective than trying to really think about what's really happening? But we do a better job of you know as we said at the top of this conversation we can more accurately predict our own feelings and behaviors. What would we do in a circumstance when we're really trying to picture ourselves living through something novel? And so that's, you know, that's another power of future simulations is this is like a, it's like a cross skill set. You know, you get better at thinking what you would do in the future in these weird novel situations that allows us to better put yourself um, in that that hard empathy position or the blended empathy position, so there it's like it's like cross training for your imagination. Cross training for your imagination. I feel like people who have heard this conversation would like to take part in your games and, at a minimum, buy the book. Just tell us some stuff about how people can get involved in your world. So what I want people to know is that when you read the book, there's all these games you can play, like a hundred ways anything could be different in the future. You rewrite the facts. Um, we have all these scenarios and simulations at the back of the book. We've created at the Institute for the Future an online community where you can come and play these games with other people or simulate these futures with other people, because really the power of this is in is in collective imagination, seeing the future from other people's points of view, you know, building that cognitive empathy, right, for other people's futures. So you're saying these the boss fights at the back of this book, you can yeah, we're gonna join a community of people working against that boss. Yes, online. Yes, um, it's at urgentoptimists.org, um, and it's also the the URLs on the book cover. So if people are trying to remember, <laughs> or you just Google my name, you know, um, you'll find this community, and we're hosting monthly game nights. I'm teaching four classes based on the book um, and just really trying to make sure, you know, readers can find each other. And, and because, you know, the, the best games are not the games we play by ourselves, right? They're games we play in community. That is so cool. Look, I'm so happy uh, that I get to uh, tell everybody about this and that you were that you, I just am happy that you are a person doing these things in the world. I'm very happy that you exist and that you're making all this stuff happen. Uh, you created a space in a lot of ways. And, uh, I feel like that, that 10 years from now, there'll be more people doing this. And, uh, and uh, that is my greatest, yeah, my greatest hope. The world I want to wake up in is people read this book and I am no longer the one making these simulations because there are now thousands of people doing it. I'm trying to get it out of my brain into, you know, the skill sets of many others. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher or SoundCloud or iTunes or Omni or Spotify or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McGraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Yes, it was a blog when I started it. Now I have this name forever. Also, uh, 
able to go to Facebook? I know you already know that, but if you go to Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart, you can join half a million people who are talking about the show and follow it there. If you'd like to support this whole thing, add value to it, do things like pay for the transcription and other features, go to patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free, but the higher amounts get you posters, t shirts, signed books, and other stuff. Also, to support the show, to really support the show, just tell people about it. Just tell people, hey, I got something out of this episode. You should listen to it. I really think you should share that on social media or somewhere. And uh, check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. And I almost forgot to mention it. The music at the beginning, that is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music right here is by S. Ponto. All right. See you in about two weeks. Insurance. We know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.